Welcome to Grace Story Podcast. We're here to connect you with education, resources, and community that equip you for the journey of restoration. My name is Nate Davison, and I am your host here at Grace Story Podcast. Thank you for joining us once again on an episode where we are on location live. These are the ones that I enjoy because you actually get to be in person. You're not on Skype, Zoom, Google Meets, whatever it might be. Uh, we are at a, a location called The Prisoner's Hope, and I'm with my friend Daryl Davis. Uh, Daryl, welcome to Grace Story Podcast. Hey, thanks, Nate. It's great to be here today. Hey, uh, it's wonderful to have you. Wonderful to be here with you. Um, but what is it you do here? You're a leader here. This is an organization that you're helping develop. Uh, let's like, maybe tell us a little bit about you and then your organization that you have here. Absolutely. I think my journey began as about as dysfunctional as it can get in the West End of Louisville. Um, grew up to a great home. So when I say a great home, we're not, we wasn't Christian, Nate. We were, um, I think we were just, we really tried to do the right thing. My dad, unfortunately, had some mental illnesses. And so uh, a lot of our life and dysfunctions kind of encompassed that. Throughout the years, he was uh, in and out of mental facilities. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom. We had, uh, I had four other siblings, and so she did the best she could to take care of us when he was away. When he would put into a facility, we would stay there until we ran out of milk, bread, money, house payments, whatever, and then we would be meted out to other family members. Wow. And so that, that's pretty much my early childhood memories. Um, moving on up to about 15 years of age, I was, um, I was already using drugs, already committing crimes in streets, and had succumbed to peer pressure kids around me and doing different things. I actually, I was a little bit different than some of them. I really did like school. I didn't want to cut school, but I cut school. I didn't want to break in cars. I didn't want to break in houses. I didn't want to do those things. It just really wasn't my heart ever, but uh, peer pressure is powerful. It sounds like you just wanted to fit in more than anything. That, and I think that's what we need in life. We want to be known, seen. We're hardwired to be known and uh, to be a part of in community and, you know, engage in relationships. Unfortunately, that plays out on a deviant side as well. So with this and, and knowing part of your story, what it's leading up to, it sounds like little things led to the biggest mistake of your life uh, and hanging out with the wrong people, which, you know, now those that are in church, they, they get it all the time. Be careful who you're hanging out with. Make sure you're mentored by the right people. And you do a lot of that here with yes. the mentorship side of thing. What, what was it, the catalyst uh, that moved towards that eventful time that eventually sent you to prison? Well, and, and so there was a lot of moving pieces uh, in the years uh, moving past. But you're right, Nate. It's, it's that collective, um, those co- that collection of wrong decisions, small and large alike. Uh, they, they move you toward a trajectory of dysfunctions and inevitably crime or drugs. And, and so my drug consumption escalated. Uh, there's an old adage in our drug world called the law of increased appetite and diminished return. The more you do, the more you've got to do to sustain the same high. And so um, I ended up a pretty heavy drug user. By the time I was 16, I was living in a car. I'd been thrown out of my dad's house and um, my life kind of started there. I took a job and... Um, realized pretty quickly that that job wasn't going to feed me, wasn't going to put me in an apartment, wasn't going to do the things I thought it would. You know, at 16 years old, I had that pie in the sky mentality like, hey, all I have to do is get a job and things mm-hmm. will be well. Well, they weren't well. But I, I think I've always been a hardwired entrepreneur from uh, the time I hit the, the ground. <laughs> um, I was pretty good at dealing drugs. 
mm. not just doing drugs, but I got pretty good at dealing them and selling and uh, had quite a bit of money. By the time I was 18, I married a girl. I married up uh, to a really good girl and who had never done drugs, but she was tolerant, tolerant of my drug use. And uh, that's very unfortunate looking back at that. Um, she was codependent and uh, an enabler. So uh, like any addict, when she confronted me about the, my drug consumption, I placated. I jumped through all the hoops just to get out of the hot water mm. and buy enough time to get back into a good place in our relationship. Um, and so I became a functioning drug addict and lived that lifestyle for a lot of years. Uh, started a moving company and um, was very successful at that over the years. Ended up with lots of contracts and money and fleets of trucks and toys, toys that I thought I wanted toys that I thought would fulfill that Grand Canyon sized void in my heart. And uh, the more I stuffed in there, the, the more there was a deficit. And I, I always felt it. I just couldn't identify you know, what, what it was. Well, be, before we jump further, you mentioned a, a phrase, the functioning drug addict, which I, I can just hear some detractors saying, <laughs> that's not a thing. <laughs> or like, what yeah. are you talking about? Or they have something in their mind of what? a drug addict is, you know, so, uh, just the street or, you know, somebody on the side of the road dealing. So you're saying a functional, someone who's doing a job and taking care of their family, but still with a very real issue. Yeah, that's right. You nailed it, Nate. How does that affect you uh, with your, your maybe trying to, your identity, who you are, who you see uh, in yourself? Are you... How are you? How are you dealing with it? Are you proud of it? You can't be like what? What does that do to a person to be a functioning drug addict? Yeah, that's a great question. And I know that's an oxymoron to say a functioning drug addict because when you think of a drug addict, you think who's functional. Hmm. Well, you're right. You nailed it. Um, I was able to maintain um, a lot of money, uh, revenue coming into the household, um, taking care of a house, a wife and a stepdaughter, cars, and all the things that go with that. But um, so. That is a really good question. I've never had anybody ask that question. I love that, Nate, because that makes me to really tease out what did happen. So we we begin, uh, addicts um, naturally get into a place of isolation. Um, and so they, they are a few steps removed from the reality of life. Uh, usually shame and guilt have a lot of that uh, behind mm-hmm. it. It's, it becomes a perpetual cycle. And so you try to hide and you try to show up not real, but you have to show up false. And so that's what you do. You build a facade and you build up and frame up uh, a life that you think people are accepting of. And so that's what you do. And after enough years of doing that, what you find out is taking that facade off. It's not easy to do. Well, I can imagine it'd be, so if you do put that much work into having a mask that uh, a built up uh, imposter that you want everybody to see when you get discovered then I can understand how devastating that would be. Yeah. Uh, and it's not on your terms. <laughs> You're on That's your right. heels. Um, so besides your wife coming in and, and kind of doing that, were there others that maybe interjected uh, before you got to this event that sent you to to, uh, to prison? There was not. And, and that's another good question. So in my arena, let me just back up. Um, in the majority of people who are addicts arena, they normally migrate toward people who are very much like themselves. Um, when you encounter someone who would call you out or put their finger on that sore spot and say, listen, man, you know, I can see that you're not showing up real. Like you have, you have built this image and it's not really you. 
We would run from those kind of people. Yeah, it's not That's safe. too real. Yeah. No, it's not safe. So it's an invasion of my world, the world that I've framed up, that I live in. And so to answer your question, no, absolutely not. Uh, not only were there um, not people who were functional in my world, but I was probably pushing those people out as quick as they would try to get in. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So w- take us further. Take us a step further now. So you, you're doing this. Have you st- did you stay with, with your wife at that time? What did she do after the confrontation there? I did. So she had got to the place where um, she called me on the carpet and said, hey, listen, I know you love these toys. You know, you, you love all this stuff. And if you want, if you don't want to wave goodbye to it, there's lots of money missing out of the household income. You're going to have to start doing something different because I know that you're spending money on your drug consumption. Mm-hmm. And so I did exactly what every good addict does. I placated again. I jumped through all of our hoops and uh, I began to figure out what to do. And in my figuring out what to do, I, I, be, I began to think about all of my friends who were all in the right places doing the wrong things. And so I, I went back to the streets and I began moving drugs from point A to point B. Now, I didn't actually touch them, but I had the ability to get them into the hands of the people who wanted to be the buyers. And so I made good money doing that until I didn't. <laughs> until you didn't. Until everything came crashing in. That's right, Nate. And what did that, what did that look like, that, that final bottom of the barrel reaching up to touch rock bottom? What, what did that event look like? Well, well... There was uh, an array of events that took place before I actually got there. Um, so on April 26, 1988, uh, a lot of things had culminated. I actually received a call from a good friend of mine who was an attorney who told me that I was being brought out on a sealed indictment. And I asked the question, who's doing this? And when he told me, uh, which I wish he'd have never done that, mm-hmm. um, he told me when we got the, onto the phone call, he said, I'm going to break every bar ethic by doing this, but you're a friend and I want you to know this. And so when I asked him the name, he told me the name. And with a Portland mentality, which is where I grew up at, and an addict's behavior, I took matters in my own hands and with vengeance in my heart, I went to execute my plan. And indeed I did. So another person in your life calling themselves a friend, uh, but giving you the exact wrong information at the wrong time, sending you it. I mean, come on, a lawyer's got to know. And they know you. That's, that's ridiculous. Yeah really was. And so when I went there, I, um, I got into an altercation with the person and, um, I had a knife. He had a knife. He stabbed me three times fatally. I stabbed him 21 times. It was a horrific scene. It was an absolute, um, traumatic nightmare. We both crashed through a picture glass door, landed on the outside. Um, he had a gun in the car and he was still moving and he was trying to make his way to the car. Mm. And I stabbed him a 22nd time. I had no idea how many times I stabbed him until I was taken downtown later on that evening and told that. And I was pretty amazed. But um, before he stopped moving, I, I began to flee the scene of the crime, Nate. And I took a few steps and I turned around and looked back, put my finger in his face and said, that's what you get, rap. And he did something that totally stopped me in my tracks. He put his hand over his mouth and said, oh, God. Now, God is a title, not a name. But uh, coming from a home that was absolutely far away from Christianity, it still got my attention. And I thought, why did he say that as I flee the scene of the crime? Went to the hospital, got stitched up, um, lied to the physicians, left the hospital a few hours later, went to a car wash, hid the weapon, cleaned my car up and returned home. And there was a warrant already issued. Evidence technician unit had already dusted the place for prints, figured out who it was, and was at my home waiting for me to return there. When I got there, I was arrested. So... 
just speechless, first of all. But as I'm thinking through this, you you get to where you're covering everything up, trying to move, but you know you're guilty. Yeah. You get home. What's going through your mind as you realize as the adrenaline is wearing off and you're you're getting to that point where you see I don't know, cars or lights or what what does it look like at your your home and what are you feeling as you pull up there like, oh no. Like are you are you remorseful immediately? Or are you just like I should run? What, what what goes through your mind? You know, if there was no remorse, um, not at this point in time. I saw the crown vix in front in my front yard and in my driveway. I didn't have anywhere to turn at that point. I didn't have another story. I didn't have any more run left in me. Um, I just knew that reckoning day was here. And so I got out of the car. I got on the ground as they commanded me to do, and they've arrested me. Went downtown. I was in jail for 10 days. Came up before Judge Jackie Shoring, who was a sweetheart. She said, Mr. Davis, you've been in some trouble in your past. She said, but um, I don't think you're a flight risk. She said, I'd like to lower your bond of 50000 full cash and let you out. You have a business. And so she let me out. And I remained free for two years, Nate. Um, and in that time, I began to sell everything I had, file chapter 13, liquidate things to pay two really high-dollar lawyers. Um, on April, uh, I'm sorry, on July 11, 1989, my life really changed radically then. That's when remorse came, and not just remorse, but repentance. So before we get to that, because that's that's the real story here, the the journey of restoration, God's grace in action. Yeah. Um, you're out for two years. First of all, I can hear some people listening like, what? You, no, you just said you stabbed somebody 22 times and you're you're out right. for two years. What was going on? And, and is that just how slow the justice system works? It is. That's a normal waiting time for any, any violent crime like that. And if you can get out on bond, that's the time you'll be out um, before it comes to trial. And two years actually is about the norm. You can actually, if you had a really good attorney that wanted to push it out, it could even be further than that. Well, and I know that's going to play in further when we talk about your organization and, and what you do with mentoring. Um, but as you're, you're going through that, you're, you're fighting this battle. Um, what did it look like and what did you feel when it finally the gavel did drop and you know you're heading in um, and you're saying your goodbyes to your family? What, what does that feel like knowing you're going in for and, and how long was it? Yeah, so I was, uh, I was given a lot of mercy there on that court hearing after three weeks of grand jury trial. They came back after deliberation and found me guilty of wanton murder, which was a real shock to me because I was not guilty of wanton murder. I was guilty of premeditated murder. Mm. I, I premeditatedly thought about it and with extreme indifference of life, went and took away a life. And so I realized that I should have had life sentence or death sentence, but God uh, was very merciful and I received a 35 year sentence. So Nate, I was 29 years old sitting in that courtroom. I had two attorneys, one on each side of me and, um, uh, so my life had changed at this point in time. I'd been saved, and I'll never forget it, um, how my head was spinning when the judge said 35 years. But in my heart, and it's a perfect storm, I had peace. There was some solidarity within me that knew that God was involved in what had happened that day and in those seconds of life. Well, first of all, it's not, it's not a small thing when I think about 35 years. First of all, I was born in 1987, and I'm 35 years old. Um, and that for me, when I hear that, that's a lifetime, literally that's my lifetime. Um, so to hear that you had peace, understanding that you would be going away essentially for a lifetime, um, is amazing. And it makes me want to go back, just take a step back, uh, before we jump into your prison experience. Can you take us to that time and tell us about God's redemption of your life and what it looked like 
for you becoming that event uh, of becoming a Christ follower? Absolutely. So I had sold my home and um, my wife and I had rented a place here in Louisville and um, she went back to school at Jefferson Community College. She was taking night classes. And so um, I was there in the evening and I'm still a drug addict. I'm still doing the same thing I've always done, getting the same thing I've always got. And so um, I was alone that night. I was upstairs in this house on Frankfurt Avenue, had the lights out, had Black Sabbath playing, had a joint going, and as a dysfunctional, uh, broken um, man, I was trying to escape the pain I was in and the fear and all the pieces that kept manifesting. Um, I was high, sitting in a recliner, when the Holy Spirit, and, and I'm telling you this language today, Nate, I, I can't tell you how I would have framed it up in my mind on that day because I wouldn't have had that terminology, sure. Holy Spirit. Um, but the Holy Spirit obviously came into that room and he arrested me on the spot. And here's how I knew something miraculous was happening. Happening, Two things happened immediately. First of all, I didn't want the joint. Something very foreign was in the room. I threw the joint out the window and an addict does not throw a joint out the window. I'm sorry, <laughs> Nate. <laughs> that was the first thing I knew was happening. <laughs> and secondly, um, I, uh, I, I could feel, I could feel. And it was something that I had not done in a long time. I, uh, addicts become numb. And so I was very numb until this very moment. But not only did I feel, but I had sobriety. Now being a, sub- a, function, a functioning addict, I know what inebriation and euphoria look like and feel like. But at this moment, I had total sobriety. It was like I hadn't done any drugs. And I'll go one more step deeper. I had clarity. I could see. I knew something was happening. I got out of the recliner. My sister had been saved um, probably two years prior to this. And she started telling me about Jesus and didn't want to hear that conversation because... um, as she also described who this Jesus was, she also described what he required of us. Sure, yeah. And all I could think about was, first of all, I've never given anyone anything they've required of me. I've let everyone down. Um, and he wouldn't want me. Why would he want me? I just committed a murder. Why would he want me? I knew all the other crimes and things I've done to hurt people. Um, this God she talked about could not want me. But when I slithered, and I do use that word with emphasis, slithered out of that recliner, Nate. I got on my face on the floor and I began to cry, um, which is something I hadn't done in years. And I could feel, and um, I just began to cry out to the name of Jesus. I didn't have any elaborate prayer. I simply asked him to forgive me and help me. And that that was the basis of the prayer. And it probably lasted 20 minutes. I cried deeper than I probably ever cried in my life. And I've had a lot of painful days. But uh, when I got up off that floor, I knew that I knew that Jesus had entered my life. Or, and, and again, I just didn't know how the mechanics of that worked, but I knew something changed. That's beautiful. It, uh, it represents the organic uh, relationship with Christ. And the thing I love about it is not knowing the terminology, not yeah. getting all the theology right. And, and what the sinner's prayer, did I say it right? Uh, well, I, I guess I better go back and say that. No, you knew that you knew you were in a relationship with Christ. Yeah. Um, and as someone who grew up in church and learned all the theology and was in you know church however many days a week, uh, sometimes we can understand all the theology and not have the relationship. Yeah. Uh, so I love that. And, and that helps explain as we go to you sitting between those two lawyers and the gavel drops and you hear that bang, 35 years. Yeah. 
you have peace. That's amazing. And, and, and it helps explain that. So let's, let's move forward a little bit here um, to your, your prison experience. Uh, what's it like going in uh, to just hearing the doors close behind you? You're not in control. Um, and you don't know what you've never been to prison before, I'm assuming. Right. Uh, and, and you don't know what to expect. And you hear all the stories um, and see all the Dateline NBC documentaries on this stuff. Yeah. What, what's going on in, in your heart and your mind as you walk into prison for the first time and know that this is your home for the next few decades? So um, I got there and they had taken me to Rotor Correctional and from there to Kentucky State Reformatory which is a very intimidating prison in LaGrange. Uh, it has the big tower out front. Uh, it was built in 1937. Um, it looked like a, a dungeon. So it sounds state of the, state of the art. It was unbelievable. Wow. Nate. So they literally took us down to the basement, shaved us, and deliced us. And uh, yeah, it was, it was quite the humiliation. Um, and so that's how you started it. Uh, we sat in a... Um, in a, in a huge, big basement area, concrete blocked wall area. Uh, everyone was in there naked for two or three hours till they called you to delice you. Then they put you in a jumpsuit and they sent you to your dorm. And so it was pretty traumatizing. Um, everything that you just mentioned, I was framing that up in my mind. I was thinking about, you know, how well can I fight? How often will I have to fight? Mm. You know, how will I get through this? Uh, what's my family going to do? There was bulleting thoughts just one after the other. And, um, I'm telling you, they'll 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 level you, and so even getting through that process and getting to the dorm was an absolute nightmare. Well, I can hear again uh, detractors saying, "Well, you get what you get. Yeah. You kill the guy." Yeah, um, I'm not one that thinks that way. I, you know, humanity is humanity, and everyone in that basement that day was an image bearer of God yeah. that made some terrible, terrible mistakes. Um, but it it reminds me that as you've already gone through a childhood of trauma. You've already gone through the own trauma of being the perpetrator and inflicting death on another human being. And now you're remorseful as you've been in a relationship with Christ, but now you're dehumanized and going through more trauma yeah. um, and fully believing the body keeps the score. That's a lot to move through. So what was your, what was your, what did you hang on to? I mean, I, I guess it would be, you know, Christ himself, but I'll leave it to you to say your words as you're moving through your sentence what did you hang on to for identity and humanity? Well, and you know, there's, there's, um, there's something in me that was trying to hang on to that image um, that could possibly intimidate other men around me or at least send the message of, man, don't mess with me. Uh, you'll get hurt. But, but the Holy Spirit was obviously working in my heart, and um, I was sick of the image at the same time. I wanted to take the mask off. I just wanted to be real now. and But trying to be real in a place this volatile was scary to me. But yeah, that, that makes sense. Like you need to protect yourself because yeah. bad things happen in here. Now you have a consolidation yeah. of people that are bad according to society and according to judges and courts. Yeah, I'd want to protect myself too. That sounds reasonable. Um, but you didn't like that? That you didn't want to put off that persona? Man, these men eat vulnerability for breakfast, let me tell you. And so it was pretty scary. But, you, you know, I want to go back and just for a second when you talk about the consequences. Um, it was the message I needed, Nate. It, it was the heart change that I needed because I had eluded a lot of um, 
judicial issues in my life. I did a lot of crimes. I did a lot of foolish things and uh, kind of got to that place where I felt like I was, you know, indefensible and I, I could do what I wanted to and um, that there was no, no, no payday. And so here I am as a Christian feeling the consequences of my sin and the weight of this is what happens when you are extremely indifferent toward another person's life or when you commit crimes against community. You know, this is what happens. And so God is an amazing God, and he's very gracious, but even in the midst of that, and I don't believe that anything is arbitrary in his allowances. I believe that what he allowed in my life from the most difficult thing I just described to many, many days thereafter were all things that helped in my sanctification that adjusted my heart and turned my heart to him. So, again, parts of your story are just leaving me speechless because I I love to have a follow-up question, but I find myself just listening and being like, whoa. Um, and my follow-up to that is kind of how did you, I want to know how did you, how did you show Christ to others? And you said they eat vulnerability for breakfast. Uh, but how, how did you show Christ to others and be vulnerable and not put off that, I'm, if you hit me, I'm going to hit you harder. If you yeah. stab me, you'll 22 times. I, you, you need to know my story because yeah. I'm better than you. Uh, how did that shift and that change happen? And, and how did you minister to others in prison? Well, I'd love to tell you that, um, you know, I just put on my big boy pants and boot and strapped up, and uh, but that's not true. Um, it was an absolutely a, a work of the Holy Spirit in my heart, and, and that crossroads came, and I've told this in many times I've shared my story, but I, I think this is a pertinent piece. When I got to prison, I was there with a lot of guys that I grew up with in the streets mm. who had already got to prison before me with other crimes. And so I was in a canteen line probably a month after I got there. And I, for the first time, I laid eyes on one of the guys that I grew up in the streets with who was one to be reckoned with. This was a guy's guy. And he saw me. He, canteen line was extremely long. And he looked back and he said, Daryl. And he came back and he hugged me. He said, man, I, I saw you on, on the news. He said, I knew you committed you know, murder. He said, oh, man, I'm glad you're here, bro, with us. He said, uh, like, we got dope here on the yard. We got guards in our pocket. We got all the stuff on the yard. Like, you're part of us, man. What, like, this is like a summer camp or something? Yeah, for... pretty much what they turned it into. Wow. <laughs> they were running things, I'll tell you that. So it sounds like you you could have uh, just started over in the, uh, the the bad habits all over again and just made no difference. I absolutely had that opportunity right at that moment. He... Uh, he went back up to where he was standing in line and, and the Holy Spirit, I love how he speaks to you in your language. And, yeah. and at that moment, he spoke to me and I knew that this was my crossroads and I knew that I had to do something and say something or forever be lost in this same foolishness I came through the door with, um, or, or committed my crime with. And so um, my dad used to say, if you don't stand for something, son, you'll fall for anything. Sure. And um, I, I just felt like I heard that in my spirit. And, um, and like I hadn't heard him say that for many, many years. In fact, he died in the middle of my three-week grand jury trial. Um, and when I called Billy back there, I, it was my moment of reckoning. And I know the Holy Spirit gave me the ability to do it. And I said, Billy, I said, you know, my life has changed radically. I said, I'm serving God and I'm going to continue serving God. And he hugged me and he said, wow, okay. And he went back up there where he was at. And from that day on, I, I knew that I was going to make the stand no matter what it cost me. And I did. So let's let's see what that looks like. Can you take us into what it looks like? And it seems seems like such a strange question to ask, but what does it look like to serve Jesus in prison? So 
you know, I said that men, uh, they, they eat vulnerability for breakfast. They, they prey on men who um, are weak. And one of the things they see as a weakness is, is the church or Jesus. They think and have said, if you're scared, go to church. That was a phrase on the compound. Um, you know, they see it as a crutch and they think that's vulnerability. And so they prey on those guys. But the beauty of that is, and I know that sounds crazy that I would use that, interject that into the sentence. But the beauty of that is if they saw those guys in continuity and sincerity going to the church and living it on the yard because there was a thousand people deep on that, in that population and everyone knew each other and they saw you at all times. If they knew you were real, you were, you were respected. If they saw you playing the game, if they saw you getting freak books off the yard, if they saw you in, in homosexuality, if they saw you buying dope on the yard, they knew, they knew, they knew you. And, and I don't want to say you wasn't real because even Christians fall into foolish things. Sure, yeah. But let me tell you, they'd be on you really quick. And I always saw that as God's chastening hand through men. <laughs> that may sound crazy and not theological, but I believe it is. It almost sounds like, too, that they... They want you to be real um, yeah. in a way. They want to know that there's at least one stinking thing out there that's authentic. Yeah. Um, because, you know, getting double crossed and, you know, watching your back is, that's a part of your life in there. Yeah. A part of your life on the street. Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, many, many days um, I had men who were absolute thugs come to me in, in discreet moments and discreet places and say, would you talk to me about this or that? Would you pray for my wife? And then they'd walk away. And uh, would never come to the church, but they respected it to that level. And that was an honoring thing for me. And that's more than just trying to use you as a lucky charm. That's They, yeah. they believed in what you believed because of what you, you were doing yeah. and living it out. Yeah. So I, before we get to what you do as a, as a ministry now, um, where did, and I want to kind of bridge it with, did this idea come to you in, in prison or what, how did the, the prisoner's hope come about? as you were moving out of prison? It did, Nate. It, it came while I was there uh, successively over the years. Um, as the Holy Spirit gave me the lens to see um, the things that were needed and the things that were missing, um, I began to seek on the outside how to put that together. I was, I was very blessed all the years I was there. I got a chance to teach discipleship classes, and, and um, I was privileged with the opportunity to get a good education while I was there. And um, I used that the best I knew how. But it just kept coming back that the Lord was drawing me into this thing, <laughs> this thing that's needed, and, and I couldn't get the help I needed. And so um, I, I realized that families were broken, that men were recidivists. They came and they came back. They left and they came back. They left and they came back. And I'm thinking, what in the world? And um, they didn't have support out there. The church was not doing what the church should be doing inside, behind the walls. Um, just a plethora of stuff um, that wasn't happening that I really felt like the Lord gave me opportunity to kind of pull and put in place. And so that's what I did. So walk us through what that is that the Prisoner's Hope does uh, for individuals who have been incarcerated. Okay. So uh, we're a holistic organization. And what I mean by that is we try to touch every piece of uh, what this thing we call incarceration is. And so we mentor men and women are on their way to prison and we don't just stop there. So let's just say, uh, Nate, your church reaches out to us and says, Hey, Daryl, we've got a congregant here that's got a son that just went to jail. 
He's at Metro and he's going to prison. Would you guys get involved in his life? Yes, Nate, we will. And so we would send our clergy down to see that person, to see if he or she would indeed be interested in doing this. Uh, just because you want that to happen doesn't mean that they do. And we found that out the hard way many days over. And so uh, um, if that person's on board, that's amazing. And then we want to get involved with the family. We believe that if you have someone incarcerated, you yourself are taken hostage to some degree in that world. And so we want to help navigate. Many times, especially if it's a spouse left behind, they're immobilized. They have no idea how to navigate in that world. They don't know what tomorrow looks like, what their economy looks like, because they're so caught up in the weeds of this whole thing and the trauma of it that they don't know how to move forward. And so we um, are good at coming in and sitting down, loving on those folks and helping navigate and, and, and the, the backdrop of, of the thing, if you will. And also the other piece is if there's children in, in the home, we want to get those children into our counseling services. Um, we believe that trauma is a very subjective term. What may be trauma for you, Nate, may not be for me and vice versa. Absolutely. And so we can't really put our finger on and say, this is trauma or this is not trauma. I would rather err on the side of, of um, you know, of what we believe is right. Get those kids in counseling, help them process past the trauma point, because that's a sticking point in our lives if we're not careful. And so we work with the family left behind. We work with the children. So that's pre-incarceration. Incarceration mentoring, um, we, let's just say, um, your church just found out about us and said, hey, we have a couple congreg uh, congregants that were here that are incarcerated now. Would you guys reach out to them? Yes, we will. So we would reach out to them, and if he or she is interested in coming on board, we want to make sure that we screen them well and let them know what we're going to uh, what we're going to require of them. And I use that word "require" very carefully. We don't ask of them to do these things. We require, by way of covenant, for them to do a GED, life skills class, moral recognition therapy, which is basic ownership of what he or she has done in the community, who they've hurt. We require them to do a two-year vocation. We require them to meet with two other accountability partners once a week on a compound. We require them to be a core member of the body of Christ. And let me just tease that out real quick. Core member means that um, you're not just showing up once a month, but but you're known by name, Nate. We know you. We know your giftings. We saw you. Um, you're exercising your gift out in the yard. We see that your brother and, and the chapel and chaplain and all the folks there, they know you because you're a part of the body. And so that's what I mean by the core member of, body, of the body of Christ. And we require them to do a two-year Bible study, which we send, and to be transparent to the mentor who we, who we assign to them for that duration of time. So that's a lot of skin on it, if you will. Um, that's a lot of requirements. But there's some beautiful things happening organically along the way. So when these men are showing up for an accountability group, they're learning to listen, to communicate. They're learning to be punctual. They're learning to trust. They're learning to use exercise the Word of God and Scripture um, when they're doing vocations, they're learning work ethics. They're, they're learning what's required of them from an employer. It's a lot of amazing organic things happening in our requisites. The next level of our ministry is post-incarceration integration. So when our people walk out the door, we help them to build legs under them. And what I mean by that is we pay their first month's transitional housing, which is usually anywhere from five to $600. When someone comes out that doesn't have that support, as soon as they land in a transitional housing space, their rent accrues from that moment on. So if that person doesn't get a job for five weeks, they owe five weeks of rent. Could you imagine walking out of prison owing child support or rearage, already owing rent, 
You don't have a job. You don't have an ID. You don't have insurance. You don't have a phone. You don't have clothes. You got nothing. And so that's a severe deck stacked against you. And so we uh, we pay that first month's transitional housing. We get them a phone. We get their ID. We get their insurance started. We get a resume built. We get them jobs. We get them clothing. We get them work boots. We get them a bus pass. And so this essentially gives them stability. Um, once we get their job, uh, we help them to learn how to commute to that place of employment. And um, their mentor tracks very carefully with them. When they began getting their first checks, we help them with budgeting. Um, we help them with computer skills. And we make sure that they're in a good, functional, Bible-believing church. We get them in counseling. So, um, again, we're walking along very closely with them and and, and making sure that their lives is, is unfolding correctly. Well, it truly does sound holistic. Finding The thing that, that impacts me there is you're finding people exactly where they are on whatever that, wherever they are on that continuum of their incarceration and, and staying with them through the entire process. How far out does this go? Because we have, we have listeners in all 50 States um, and we're here in, in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, but how far out does your reach go for, for this kind of help? So we're in every state prison here in Kentucky and some outside uh, that are federal prisons outside of Kentucky. If someone, a listener here today has someone incarcerated in a different state, we would communicate with them via snail mail or however it's set up. If it's a federal institute, it's usually called CoreLinks. So today's technology allows them actually the privilege of doing an email from the wing. Uh, then obviously that email is monitored by internal affairs. So you can't just email anyone, but you can have someone put on your visiting site to do an email back and forth. And so if that is the only capacity we would have to, to mentor that person, we would do that very well. Well, and, and I do have one more question for you, but uh, if, if, and we'll put it in the show notes too, but if people want to reach out, they've heard what you've said um, and they want to help you, um, what's a way that they can then contact you to help others uh, via phone or email, but also if they want to help you monetarily, is there a need uh, that, that you have on your mind or, and how can they reach you for that? Yeah, with a nonprofit nature, there's always needs. <laughs> and so when I stepped into this nonprofit world, I, I, I'm, I'm not good at asking for, uh, people for help it was financially and just kind of one of those things for me, it's never been comfortable. But the old, uh, the old cliche is with nonprofits, we always are looking for time, talent, and treasures. And time meaning, hey, we need volunteers. So um, right now, I think if I remember right, my last count, we have 153 volunteers. And so that sounds like a large number. And you think, wow, so they're, they're doing something. But I'll tell you guys, we have a drawer full of people waiting to be mentored. We could have used another, another 153 like months back. We need people. And so it's hard to find people that would get involved with someone that's incarcerated. I know that's a, a different um, kind of nonprofit, but I can, tr- I can promise you it's mutual transformation. You can't outgive God. If you'll just step in and trust, he'll do something amazing and bless you back from it. And then, of course, uh, talent, uh, if you have skill sets, we're, we're not always looking for mentors. Sometimes we're looking for people that'll come in and, and do some um, clerical some CPA work, you know, whatever it is, if you bring a skill set, we'll, we'll find a way to utilize that. And then treasures, obviously uh, our annual budget, Nate, is about 400,000 a year. I think we do a lot for that amount, a whole lot. We have a caseload that matches about the same as our volunteers. We're about 160 people. And so um, I, th- I think that's a huge bang for your buck. If you want to, to help this ministry do what we do, we are a gold seal holder on GuideStar, which means that uh, GuideStar is the guru, if you will, for nonprofits. So you can go out there and, and dial up the Prisoner's Hope. That is the Prisoner's Hope. 
and you'll see that we're gold seal holder and our 990s and all of our all of our financials are print transparent there. So we're totally above the board accountable. And then lastly, Nate, we have uh, um, one of our biggest events coming up at the end of the year called The Breakfast for Hope. And um, that is an event held in J-Town here in Louisville, Kentucky, over at the Jeffersonian. And we'll have a guest speaker or somebody that we've helped and possibly a family. We're not sure exactly who that's going to be this year, but it'll be an amazing uh, morning uh, with a great breakfast and lots of love and grace and representation of the ministry. And hopefully we will glorify the Lord there and edify the body of Christ that will come. And and we'll put in the show notes your your website with contact information. Uh, so listener, if, if something's touched your heart here and you think you can be involved in, in some way, make sure you reach out. Uh, Daryl will be glad to hear from you. Um, Daryl, as we come to the close here, I like to give the, the guest an opportunity to speak directly to the listener. And we may have found someone, um, and, and God may have placed this episode in front of someone uh, who is maybe right where you were um, yeah. as a kid or, or right where you were as, as someone who had just killed somebody uh, going through our court system or somebody who finds themselves in jail or somebody whose family member is in jail. To those people, to that person, if you would speak directly to them, what would you say from Daryl? So what's on my heart, Nate? is uh, something I wanted to say a little earlier. The night I was saved, I'll never forget it. Um, It was amazing. And the day thereafter, um, I still had an insatiable appetite for drugs. And so I just want you to know that that didn't go away. The desire didn't go away. And neither did my usage. But I'll tell you what I felt. I felt condemned. I felt like the Lord would never have me at this point because we've... We've obviously made this agreement. Uh, I've came to him. He's accepted me. And now I've blown it up the very next day. But I had never laid my eyes yet on Romans 8, 8, 1. It says, there is therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. All I felt was condemned. And to be honest with you, Nate, for many months before I went to trial date, I contemplated suicide because I thought, I can't get away from drugs. I can't not please the Lord. Uh, I can't please him. I, I don't know what to do. Um, I was not submitting myself to, to discipleship. Uh, my wife had came home that night and I told her what happened and she said to me, oh, how convenient you think God's going to get you out of this, don't you? So from that point on, I never told anyone about my newfound faith. I never submitted myself to what I needed, which was being discipled. And so I am a pro-advocate on men need to be discipled. So listener, if you're here today and you just stepped into Christ, submit yourself to discipling. Uh, it was the best thing when it did happen that I ever did. And I still submit myself to mentors who mentor me. And uh, we need one another. God has hardwired us for purpose, community, and relationships. We have to be connected. That's the healing piece for addiction. The other side of addiction is isolation. Beautiful. I mean, that goes right with you know what we say. A great story community is everything you can't heal in hiding. Uh, in the darkness, you have to have others uh, that'll help help you along the way. Um, Daryl, thank you for coming on Great Story Podcast, being vulnerable here, um, sharing your story, reliving some of those moments. We don't take that lightly. Um, and thank you for sharing with our guest uh, your story today. It is my, priv- my privilege and honor. Thank you, Nate. I appreciate you for having me today. And to you, the listener, thank you for joining in. Uh, We do invite you to go over to greatstoryministries.com. Check out all the resources over there. We have Women's Conference coming up in November. Uh, You can go ahead and get your registration squared away for that. 
uh, and also our newsletter over there. Just go over and sign up for that. Have it come right into your inbox. Like I say every time, there is no us without you. So get involved, get engaged, continue on your journey of restoration. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. And until then, we'll be praying for you.